what we're doing right now here tonight is weird. Like, let's just admit that, right? I mean, free Chipotle is good, but it, it's, not, it's not this good. To cause you to give up your time that you've got, that is at your disposal, to cause you who have a job to say, hey, I, I need Sunday nights blocked out because I, I have somewhere that I need to be. To cause you to uh, come in and sit in a room and, and sing corporately together, uh, as good as Nathan is, not to a concert, but you're singing these songs, and, and then you're singing these songs that are praising someone else. Uh, they're not Taylor Swift songs about like breaking up with a boyfriend or anything else like that. Um, to then sit in these chairs and open up a book that was completed, you know, close to 2,000 years ago, give or take, and then to listen to some guy up here uh, talk to you for a little while about what this book has to say, and then to to go from here into these small groups where you guys talk even more about why this should matter in your lives, and then you pray and uh, you open up and say, hey, I, would you pray for me this week about this need? And meaning, would you, would you bow your head and close your eyes at some point this week and, and speak these words um, to the, the concept of a being who is sovereign over the entire universe and has the power uh, to affect change in our lives? What we're doing here tonight is weird. In fact, the world looks at it and says, what, what are you doing that for? Why would you do that? And when you say, well, it's because I love God, because I love Jesus, uh, so much of the world's reaction against that is because they don't really truly understand who God is, or they don't know Jesus the way that hopefully, Lord willing, you know Jesus. In fact, so much of the hostility against God and against the church, the bride of Christ, has to do with a misunderstanding of Jesus. And that's one of the main reasons why we've been covering Hebrews this whole semester. Looking at Jesus as the better one. Jesus is not just the better one, but Jesus as the ultimate one. That there's no one, we just sang it, there's no one greater than Jesus. That he is better than everything. And as our writer begins to conclude, and not just begins to conclude, but does conclude in our passage tonight, our last message in Hebrews. He gives what's called a benediction, a good saying, and it's found in a lot of letters in the, the New Testament where it's a, a way of departing and wishing well to those that he's writing to. And as he does this in verses 20 and 21 of Hebrews chapter 13, he's reminding us of so much of what he's already covered in this book. And he's reminding us of why we're here tonight, of why we choose to be here tonight, and why we may say, okay, yeah, I can understand why the world might think that this is weird. But at the end of the day, because of the reality of who God is and what he's done for me, <clears throat> this, this is not weird at all. This is the least that we should be doing. So take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 13, if you're not there. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, starting in verse 20, our author says this, Now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. 
And for you OCD type that are going to worry if I don't read the rest of the book and leave the last few verses, here you go. I appeal to you, brothers. Bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You guys are going brief? We've spent how many weeks going? 13, 14 weeks going through Hebrews? I've written to you briefly, which is a good reminder to us that this whole book was meant to be read in one sitting. That this was a letter that was just to be read to the church. This was not originally written by the writer to say, okay, have your, your pastor break it into 13 segments and preach it over 13 weeks. Not that we shouldn't be doing what we're doing. We should be doing what we're doing. But we also need to remember that these letters were, for their original audiences, meant to be read in a single sitting. I've written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Hebrews. Hebrews has been about Jesus is better and it's still about Jesus is better. But it's, uh, before we get to why Jesus is better, I want us to understand Jesus is better because Jesus came to do the will of the Father. When you think about the Father, when you think about God, how do you conceive of God, the Father? What thoughts first fill your mind when you hear that phrase, the Father, the Heavenly Father, God, the Creator? Maybe some of these thoughts, that he's omnipotent, which means that he is all-powerful. That he's omniscient, that he knows everything. That he's the creator of the universe, that he's the Lord of all creation. That he, There's nothing under heaven which God did not have a hand in creating. Not just a hand in, but the direct author of creation. That he's glorious. You think of Isaiah 6, and you think of the, the throne room of God, and you think, wow, he is a glorious God, a God who I can't bear to be in his presence because of his majesty, right? Or you think about his holiness, speaking of Isaiah chapter 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. When Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in a people of unclean lips. Or you think that he is big, massive, unfathomable. Or you think that he, maybe you consider him to be wrathful. When you hear the term father, what you associate is God's anger, his wrath against sin, and, and maybe more specifically, your sin. Or maybe you think that he's just, he's a God of justice. Well, scripture, I'm going to put a, a handful of passages up on the screen here, just a, a few here as we go through. And you can just take a picture of the screen if you want. Um, See all those references up there? You know what every single one of those references has in common? Paul is greeting churches. And, and any of you think of how Paul would greet the churches so often? He would say, grace and what? Peace to you from who? God our Father. Grace and what? Peace. Peace. When you think of the Father, when you think of the Heavenly Father, when you hear that phrase, when you think of God, where does peace come in the, the thoughts and concepts that immediately pop into your mind? How quickly do you get to the fact that he is a God of peace? For Paul, it was one of the first things that he wanted his people to remember as he's writing these letters. Grace, okay, yeah, we need grace. And what has grace done for us but produce peace with God? Grace and peace to you from God our Father. 
over and over and over and over and over again. Again, y'all, one of the reasons why the world looks at us and says, you guys are crazy is because they don't understand God. They may understand the, the wrathful side of things because they, maybe they've, they've run into some poor witnesses. They may understand the, the concept of his power and his holiness and want nothing to do with that. But do they understand his peace? Our writer says, now may the God of peace. Notice that in verse 20. May the God of peace. He doesn't say may the all-powerful God. He doesn't say, may the God of all creation, may the God of the universe, may the God who knit you together in your mother's womb, may the God who, I mean, pick your favorite attribute of God that you might expect. And yet our author says, no, may the God of peace. Where did that peace come from? How did it come about? Colossians 1, 19 through 20 begins to give us a glimpse into that. Verses 19 and 20, Colossians 1. For in him, speaking of Jesus, for in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile. That means to bring them to him, to restore relationship with him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by what? The blood of his cross. Whose cross? Jesus' cross. So when we read, now may the God of peace we need to understand that, that this peace that we have from God, when Paul says grace and peace to you from God the Father, we need to understand that this peace is not peace that comes cheaply or freely. We receive it freely as a gift, hence the grace part of things. But the peace that we have with the Father cost the death of his son on the cross. It was purchased for us, for you and me, by the blood of the cross. And so again, as we think and reflect on this whole letter, this whole epistle that's been focused on the fact that Jesus is better, he is better. And the Father is the one that has provided him for us. And in providing him for us, he has brought the solution to our alienation from him. He has brought the solution to our hostility towards him. He has brought what we now know of as peace. Point number one tonight is this, respond to the Father's provision for peace. Respond to the Father's provision for peace. Y'all, God came after us. He made the first move, and the second, and the third, and the fourth. Sometimes when we're offended, right, what do we tend to do? We're like, well, I'm not, I'm not going to try to reconcile. They're the ones that offended me. I'm not going to go try to make that relationship right. If they want a relationship with me, they need to come after me. Like, look, I'll, I'll publicly confess to you guys right now that I left Noah on red this week. Twice, actually, twice. So there you go. I need to go to Noah, right? But Noah's sitting back there like, bro, I'm done with him. I'm not going to text him anymore and try to draw him into this relationship. That's how we think, right? And who are we? We're just a bunch of sinners ourselves who have also offended other people, Okay. With God, you have the perfectly holy God. If there's ever somebody that could have sat back and crossed his proverbial arms and said, I'm not doing anything, they need to come seek me out, it was the Father. But praise God, he didn't because we can't come and reconcile with him. That's the problem of our sin. 
that it's created this infinite chasm between us that's put us at war with God. We are his enemies, Paul says in Romans chapter 5. That there's anything but peace between us and God before God comes towards us. And so y'all, if you're here tonight and you've been holding out on God and you've been around the church and you've heard the gospel, but yet you're kind of thinking, you know, I don't know if I want it. Can I just hold out this, this thought to you that, that God is coming after you tonight where you sit with an offer of peace through the blood of Jesus Christ, which is in our passage as well. Look again at verse 20 when he says, now may the God of peace who brought again from the what? From the dead. See, it's, it's right there. Jesus had to be dead for there to be peace. May the God of peace who brought again Jesus from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood, there it is once more, of the eternal covenant. Why do we have peace with God? Because of this eternal covenant that he's provided. Well, where did the eternal covenant come into play? At the cross. It was ratified with the blood of Jesus. That without the cross, there's no peace with God. But notice also, it's not just his death, but also his resurrection. The God of, of peace who brought him again from the dead. Because here's the deal, y'all. If Jesus is still dead and not risen from the dead, then we're still in our sins and we don't have peace with God. The resurrection was God, the Father's stamp of approval on the offering of Jesus Christ, the Son. Saying it's acceptable. Because Jesus was perfectly qualified, because Jesus was the sinless one. Mark Jones, in his book, Knowing Christ, which I would commend to you, says this, In Jesus, there was nothing negative that was present or positive that was lacking that could keep God, the Father, from accepting his sacrifice. There was nothing negative that was present, meaning there was no sin in this one. Nor was there anything positive that was lacking. He perfectly fulfilled the law. And so... He was qualified to be the sacrifice that brought us peace. And then may the God of peace who brought this one from the dead. Paul describes this peace in far greater detail for us in Ephesians chapter 2. Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Keep a finger in Hebrews chapter 13, but flip backwards. To Ephesians chapter 2. And Paul's writing during a time when there were still a lot of tensions between the Jews and the Gentiles, even within the church, as we've been talking about in the book of Hebrews. How much of the Old Testament law do we still need to obey? What about these rituals? What do we need to do? How, do, how should we do this? How do we think about each other? So Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. He says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles, okay, unless you are a Jew in this room, that's the rest of us. We're, we're all Gentiles. At one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, that is by the Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, Gentiles, that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated. Notice the language here of separation. It's the opposite of peace. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. Thinking primarily probably of the Abrahamic covenant there. 
that we would be blessed by the offspring of Abraham, who would bless all the nations of the earth, right? At one time, we were strangers to the covenant promises, having no hope and without God in the world, okay? That's all of us prior to Jesus. But look at verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. How have we been brought near? What does it say there? By the, by the blood of Christ, by the blood of Christ. For he, Jesus himself, is our peace. Isaiah chapter 9, one of the names, titles for Jesus is the prince of what? The prince of peace. For he, Ephesians 2, 14, Jesus is our peace, who has made us both one, Jew and Gentile alike, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making, and here's our word again, peace. And verse 16, he might reconcile us. Remember, that's to take you from being separated from God and to bring you back close to God, to restore relationship. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body, how? Through the what? Through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The hostility that existed between who? Jew and Gentile? Uh-uh between you and God. The cross killed the hostility between you and God. Verse 17, and he came and preached peace, the gospel, to you who were far off and Jews, peace to you who were near. For through him, Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Y'all, God is our peace and Christ is the key to that peace. He's the cornerstone. And so when we say respond to the Father's provision for peace, what we're saying here is respond to the Lord giving us Jesus, to the Father's giving us his Son, so that we could have peace, because that's the only way that we could have peace. And how many times in the book of Hebrews, you can go back to Hebrews now, how many times in the book of Hebrews did we read over and over and over again of the access that we have to the Father now through the Son? Hebrews chapter 4, since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God not one that is unable to sympathize with us, right? But one who has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us what? Now let's draw near through him. Hebrews chapter seven. He is able to now save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. He has torn the curtain. Remember, he's the anchor of our soul that's gone behind the veil to give us access to the presence of the holiness of God. See, we have peace with God, so now we have access with God. God is our peace, and Christ is the key to that, and we need to make sure that we've responded to that and thought about that well enough. And so as you think about where you're at spiritually, y'all, I want you to ponder. Maybe the fact that you struggle to read the Bible every day says more about your perception of who God the Father is than it does your busyness or your schedule or your calendar. Maybe it says more about how you think about him than it does about your self-discipline. Because when we begin to conceive of God as the God of peace, when we begin to think about all that he's done for us in Jesus, 
when we begin to rightly understand Ephesians chapter 2, when we begin to rightly think about all the great glorious realities of, of the book of Hebrews that we've been studying and the sacrifice and what it cost him to give us Jesus, man, when we begin to conceive of the Father that way, that he gave his son so that we would no longer be aliens and strangers, but sons and daughters, how much more should that cause us to then want to be with him? Because now you're not approaching him timidly as this angry stepfather that's got his belt coming off because you sinned this week. No, no, no. Now you're coming to him going, and you loved me that much? Why? How? You want to forgive me? Again? Yes. Because why? Because he's the God of peace. So when you think of the Father, yes, it's good to think about those other attributes that we talked about. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He's the God of all creation. He is a wrathful God. He's just. He's holy. He's glorious. He's majestic. But when all of that just magnifies the glorious reality that he's a God of peace as well. And that he loved us enough to provide access to himself through Jesus. May the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. Notice he goes on in verse 21. May he equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. May this God, who's made peace with you by the blood of his Son, may he now equip you with everything good to do that which is pleasing to him. Y'all, the God who saves us sanctifies us. He doesn't save us and then leave us as we are. He will save you where you are, but he won't leave you where you are. God is in the business of making you look more like Jesus. And that's what we're talking about here. Coming on the heels of this, saying, look, he's already made peace, and that cost him his son. What is there that he won't now freely give us, as the Apostle Paul says? He's given us what cost him the most to save us. Now he's going to give us everything necessary for us to then be more like Jesus. The God who saves us sanctifies us. 1 Corinthians 1, 2. 1 Corinthians 1, 2 says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those, notice the word, sanctified, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Those sanctified. 1 Corinthians 6, 11. 1 Corinthians 6, 11 says, And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were what? You were sanctified. Okay, both of those verses are dealing with the sanctification that is passive and a sanctification that is past. Okay? This is a positional sanctification. By the way, the word sanctification, if you're out there going, can we slow down and just talk about what that word means? Uh, it means to be made holy, okay? It comes from the Greek word that means holiness. And so to be sanctified is to be made holy, to be made like 
Jesus is what we're talking about in this process. But this is a positional sanctification, meaning you are taken from a position of being unclean and unholy, and in Christ you are made clean and holy. You are declared righteous. This is very similar, positional sanctification is, to justification. Justification being the legal declaration of the Father that you are not just not guilty, but now innocent in Christ, that you have the righteousness of Christ. So when we are saved, we are sanctified at the same time, positionally speaking. You are no longer who you once were. You are now set apart for use by God, okay? The God who saves us sanctifies us. But it's not just positionally, because we read other things like this in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, 1 Thess 5.23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. It's the God of peace there again. Notice that. And now may he what? May he sanctify you completely. So this is a different sanctification than the sanctification that's past tense that we just read about in 1 Corinthians. This is an ongoing sanctification. This is one that begins when we're saved and continues for the rest of our life until we go to be with the Lord. This is what we call progressive sanctification. This is the ongoing daily battle with sin that you and I have every single day of our lives. Trying to choose holiness and to choose obedience to the Lord rather than choosing sin. And so the same God who positionally sanctifies us, notice here, progressively sanctifies us. May he sanctify us completely. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 11 Again, for he who sanctifies, present tense, and those who are sanctified, are being sanctified, they all have one source. Again, there's the, the, the process that's taking place there. Hebrews 10, 14. Hebrews 10, 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are, again, here's the process, being sanctified. So again, this is the sanctification that is active, that is ongoing, that is progressive, that sees us progressively made more and more into the image of Jesus. But just like our positional sanctification, y'all, who is doing the sanctifying in our lives in this progressive sanctification? It's the God, God the Father, the God of peace. May the God of peace sanctify you completely, right? That, that he is the one that, according to our passage, is equipping us with everything good that we might do his will. That's what sanctification is to daily set ourselves to try to do the will of God. And our writer says that God is equipping us with everything good that we might be able to do that, to live in such a way which is pleasing in his sight. I I hope you want to live in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. And so as you think about that, he says he is equipping us. To equip is to be prepared or made ready for something. To be prepared or made ready for something. In Hebrews, we've seen Jesus was equipped for something because there was something that Jesus had never experienced prior to the incarnation that was key to his ability to be our high priest. And that is what? Suffering and temptation. So his endurance was something that Jesus needed to be equipped with in order to meet the standard to be a sympathetic high priest so that he could say, I have been tempted as you are yet without sin. Prior to the incarnation, he couldn't utter the statement, I have been tempted as you are. So he had to learn something. He had to be equipped. Hebrews 2.10, for it was fitting that he, Hebrews 2.10, that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That Jesus would suffer, which again is something that he had never experienced prior to the incarnation. He needed to be equipped with that. 
Hebrews 5, 8, and 9 says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, the temptations that he faced and endured. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Again, Jesus was equipped. Hebrews 7, 28. For the law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priest, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So we don't like to imply that Jesus was lacking anything. Well, he wasn't lacking anything from a character or, or, or God standpoint. But because he was God, he had never experienced temptation and never experienced any suffering. And so he was equipped through the incarnation with those attributes, those aspects that now make him a sympathetic high priest for us. Now, y'all, God is equipping us through him to be able to do the will of God. To be able to do the will of God. And he's doing that through the same means that he did that in Christ's life, which is through the Holy Spirit. Point number two tonight is this. Respond to God's provision for your progress. Respond to God's provision for your progress. He's made provision for your peace through Christ. He's making provision through your progress also through Christ, but by extension through the Holy Spirit. There's this interesting relationship in progressive sanctification between our role and God's role. And it's found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, here it is, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, that's a command to you and I that we need to be working out our salvation. What does that mean? We need to be obedient to the will of God. We need to, to obey him. We need to fulfill him. We need to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord, to use our language from Hebrews. And he says, so work out your salvation. And then he says this, for it is God, the Father, who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You work, but God's going to be working in you. Okay? How does that work? I don't know. I don't know. We'll find out. Well, maybe we won't find out. I don't know. You guys know when we get to heaven, we're not going to be omniscient, right? That's an unshared attribute of God. Like we're going to spend eternity continually learning more stuff. God's the only one that's omniscient. So if you're going, I'll know that in heaven. Maybe you will. Maybe you won't. You'll have eternity to try to find the answers out. But we won't know everything right away. But how does that relationship work? I'm commanded to work, to obey God's will, but, but God's going to work in me to make sure that that happens. I don't know. Trust that it does. So when you get up in the morning, you're like, you know what? I'm going to get up this morning. I'm going to open up my Bible. I'm going to do my daily Bible reading. Are you doing that? Uh-huh. Is God empowering that in you? Uh-huh. What I'm not saying this is, is this is not a let go and let God kind of like, well, I, God's going to work in me, so I'm just going to kick it into cruise control, and then if he wants me to be holy, he'll make me holy. Meanwhile, I'm going to go ne binge Netflix for a while, see what happens. And then meet with my leader, I'm going to be like, I don't know why I'm not reading the Bible. I don't know. I just don't have time. It's God's fault. He's not working in me to willing to work for his good pleasure. Uh-huh. How's that going to go with the Bema seat? Oh, we'll see. Yo, we see this example for us perfectly in Jesus' life. I mentioned that God equipped Jesus through the Spirit. Did you catch that? When Jesus was here incarnate as a, as a man, as the God-man in the flesh, as he lived his life out, y'all, he did so under the power of the Holy Spirit. When he did, worked miracles, it was empowered by the Holy Spirit. When he taught, it was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Okay? When he was born even, right? Let's start there. His incarnation, the birth of Christ, was made possible by the Holy Spirit. 
Because what was Mary told? Mary said, how can this be? For I am just a virgin. Hopefully you guys understand that concept, right? He says, how can this be? For I'm just a virgin. And what does the angel say to her? The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And he will, by his power, conceive in your womb the Son of God. Okay? So the incarnation is made possible by the Holy Spirit. Let's keep going. How about baptism and anointing? You remember that, right? He grows up and then he bursts on the scene, so to speak. He goes out to John the Baptist in the wilderness. And John's initially like, I'm not going to baptize you. I can't even untie your shoes. And Jesus says, no, no, no. We need to do this. Jesus goes into the water. He's baptized. The heavens open up. The Holy Spirit comes down like a dove. Not, he didn't turn into a bird, okay? Comes down like a dove and rests on Jesus. Why the visible portrayal there? So that they would understand that he's being anointed by the power of God through the Holy Spirit. What does Luke's gospel say the Spirit does right after that with Jesus? Luke is strong with his language here. says it expels him. The Spirit expelled Jesus out into the wilderness. Drove him there. Mark's a little softer. He's led. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. But led Jesus into the wilderness. Where what happened in the wilderness? Temptation. For how long? 40 days. Ding, ding, ding. And we only read three occurrences. Y'all, we understand, right, that there was way more that was going on with Jesus in the, in the wilderness than just the three occurrences when Satan tempts him there that we read about. But Jesus resists temptation. How does he resist temptation? Because he's simply God? Well, he is the God-man, but he resists temptation because he's perfectly obedient and submissive to the Father's will, empowered by the Spirit to do what the Father wants him to do, which is to obey the Lord. And so he resists because he's empowered by the Spirit. Preaching. Preaching. Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 21, Jesus walks into the synagogue, picks up the scroll from the Old Testament from Isaiah, and starts to read, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit of the Lord, did you catch that? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. So Jesus' preaching was anointed by and empowered by what? The Holy Spirit. His miracles, his miracles, Matthew 12, 28, when Jesus is accused of casting out demons by Satan, which by the way is the blasphemy of the spirit, if you're wondering. His response is this. He says, but if it is by the spirit of God instead, by, by the spirit of God, Jesus says, that I do this, that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus doesn't say, if it's simply by the fact that I'm God that I do this. No, he says, I'm working these miracles by the spirit of God. Mark chapter six, verse five, says that Jesus could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few of the sick people and healed them. He's up in the region of Galilee there. It says he could do no mighty work. Why? Because it was a physical impossibility? No, because he was dependent upon the spirit and the spirit didn't want him to be healing people because the father didn't want him to be healing people there. So he didn't heal people there. The miracles were done by Jesus. Uh, Death, resurrection. Death and resurrection. Again, empowered by the spirit. Hebrews 9, 14. Hebrews 9, 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, notice that, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God. When Jesus is in Gethsemane and he's praying, if there's any way to let this cup pass, please, but not my will, but your will be done. What is it that kept Jesus 
obedient to the Father. It was his reliance upon trust in empowerment by the Holy Spirit. As Jesus is hanging on the cross and people are mocking him. Some king you are. You saved others, save yourself. As soldiers are blindfolding him and hitting him and spitting on him. Who prophesy? Who, who was that that did that to you? What kept him from lashing out? His reliance upon the spirit given by the father to do the will of the father. And then also his resurrection, Romans 1.4. Romans 1.4 says that Jesus was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit. He was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So the spirit had a hand in the resurrection. Y'all, if this is true, Jesus, that Jesus needed to rely upon God's provision of the spirit for everything that he did on earth, and he did it perfectly. How much more do you, you and I, you and, you and I, you and I, I need to be, me need to be, you and I, <laughs> little glimpse inside of a preacher's mind, that stuff happens more than you know. It's like, did I just say the wrong word? How much more do you and I need to be relying upon the Holy Spirit? The answer is a Google more, right? My twins are way into that number these days. Oh, it's a Google. Like, you don't even know what that is. Like, it's the biggest number ever. And that's, that's why when he says there, right, that he's equipped us with everything good. What is the everything good that he's equipped us with? Fundamentally, I think it's the Holy Spirit. Through Jesus Christ. Notice he says that. He's given us everything good back in our text in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 21. He's equipped us with everything good that we might do as well. And then notice, notice down there, it says, through Jesus Christ. Okay, so let's just talk about this for a second. Here was Jesus, John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. John 14, verses 16 and 17. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Okay, so there we've got Jesus talking about giving the spirit. How about John 14, 26? But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. So the Spirit's going to have that role in our lives to help us remember the, the words of Christ. John 16, 7 says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, says Jesus, the helper, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And then finally, John 16, 13 through 15. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So do you see how we've been given everything that is good to do the will of God? Because fundamentally, Christian, if you are in Christ, you have received the Holy Spirit. And he's going to take everything that was Christ's. And Jesus said, all that is mine is all that is the Father's. And the Spirit's job is to take that and bring it to us. And to apply it to our lives. And so, students, let me encourage you. Feed the Spirit. Feed the Spirit. Remember, there was a pastor who's teaching I sat under for a time. And one of the most profound things that he said was, there are two 
animals at war within you. Not animals. There are two powers at war within you. There's the flesh and the spirit. And he said they're, they're fighting each other. He said, just like a dog fight, you know which one's going to win? He said this, the one that you feed. So if, if you feel like you're a welcome mat for sin these days, like you're just being owned, can I ask you who you're feeding? How much are you feeding the Spirit? What does that mean? Well, one of the things that the Spirit loves to feast on is the Word of God. That's what he's there to do, is he's there to take the Word of God and apply it to our lives. And so if you have an anemic diet when it comes to God's Word, you should expect very little progress in your growth in Christ-likeness. And the inverse is true as well. If you are drowning in God's word, if you are saturating yourself with God's word, you can expect to see God begin to do a lot of good things in your life. It may feel the opposite initially as you realize more and more of your sinfulness and the the need to, to repent from those things. But man, praise God for that because that's the spirit going to work. He's cleaning house. He needs to do those things. That's the the master sculptor with the hammer and chisel going to work on our lives, knocking off the parts that need to be knocked off. Feed the spirit. How else can you feed the spirit? You're feeding the spirit tonight right where you are. But being here, being around other believers in Jesus. Feed the spirit with the the company that you keep. Be around other believers, believers that are going to encourage you, that are going to point you to Jesus, encourage you to follow him, love him more, encourage you to respond to his provision for your progress on a regular basis. Another way to feed the spirit is to starve the flesh. Watch out for sin, y'all. If you're reading our DBR this morning, in John chapter 8, Jesus said it there. Whoever practices sin is a slave to sin. And that jumped out the page at me this morning as I was reading that. Jesus, whoever makes a practice of sinning, is a slave to sin. Y'all, we are in Christ. We are to be free from sin. Romans chapter 6 is all about that. Starve the flesh. Go to war against your fleshly desires. Work them out as much as you possibly can of your life. Feed the Spirit with the Word. Finally, back in our passage, notice the ending of verse 21 working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. Okay, so through the provision that we have in Christ, which is salvation initially, and then the spirit after that, right? To whom be the glory forever and ever, amen. To whom be the glory forever and ever, amen. Who's the whom? Come on. Sunday school answer. One, two, three. Jesus. Jesus is better, which is why he's saying at the end of all this, It's all about him. It's all about him. Final point tonight is this. Respond to God's purpose for your life. His provision for your peace, his provision for your progress, and finally his purpose for your life. I couldn't find a P for life. So there you go. You just get L. Sorry. But what is his purpose for your life? If you're wondering, what does God want me to do? What's his purpose for my life? Can I give you the 30,000 foot answer to that question? It's right here that you would glorify Jesus forever and ever. Amen. That's, if you are a, a Christian, that's God's purpose for your life. Well, does he want me to do that as a, as a doctor? 
I don't know, maybe. Do you want me to do that as an airline pilot? Maybe. Do you want me to do that as uh, a thug for the Boston mob? No. (laughs) No. Do you want me to do that as a speech pathologist? Maybe. Do you want me to do that as a mom? Maybe. Do you want me to do that as a pastor? Maybe. That's probably yes. I'm I'm thinking there's not too many pastors out there in the world that he's going, yeah, you don't need to glorify Jesus. But that's his purpose. That's why he's made peace with you. That's why he's given you the spirit for your progress is so that you will then glorify Jesus. This starts in the Old Testament, Psalm 135.4, and even before this, but we're going to start here. Psalm 135.4, for the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, that is Israel, Israel as his own possession. God chose Israel for himself, for his own possession. He said to Israel, you're mine. I want you for my possession, my purposes. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. He who gave himself for us, this is speaking of Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself. Sorry, I lost my my place. Purify for himself a people for his own possession. So Jesus saved you to purify for himself a people for his own possession, just like God did with Israel in the Old Testament. He's done with the church today. You are, in fact, here it is from Peter. You are a people, a chosen race, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And so y'all, in other words, Jesus, God has, has saved you. The Father has saved you through the Son, through Jesus. And he's given you the Spirit so that you would be progressively sanctified. Why? Because you're his. And he's got a purpose for you. And his purpose for you is that you would glorify Jesus. The point and purpose of the letter to the Hebrews is what? To demonstrate that Jesus is, come on, it's right there. There you go. That Jesus is better. That's the point of this letter. It rhymes. (laughs) Jesus is better. That's what he wants us to understand, right? And that's why he wrote this letter. And y'all, that's why God is writing his letter in your life. So that your life reads to everyone around you, Jesus is better. So that your life exists to glorify Christ. That's what he wants from you and from me. Is that we would read to the world around us, Jesus is better. Look, if you're an Apple guy, right, you like Apple products, people know it. You don't, like they, they know it. You don't need to tell them again. Preaching myself. If if you're a CrossFit person, everyone knows you're a CrossFit person because the hardest thing about CrossFit is to figure out how to tell somebody else that you do CrossFit. If you've run a marathon, everybody knows it because you got the numbers on the back of your car. Twenty six point two. Some of y'all are like, "Oh, that's what that means." So I was wondering, why is, is that a club? Uh, yes, it's a very elite club. If you're gluten-free, y'all, people know it, okay? <laughs> people know it. And we love you still. My point in that is this. Do people know that easily that Jesus has saved you for his glory? Can people tell that you love Jesus as much as they can tell that you love Apple or that you love CrossFit or that you've run a marathon or that you hate gluten with everything in you? 
Do people know that about you? And if they know all those other things about you, but they don't know how much you love Jesus, then you've got it completely backwards. Because at the end of it all, it's not going to be about what phone you carried or what your diet looked like. It's not going to be about any of that. It's going to be about what did you do with Jesus? What did you do with Jesus? And as Pastor Mike has said before, the final exam for the Christian is a pop quiz. We don't know when that's coming. And so this is the wake-up call for all of us in this, this litmus test, this point, this stake in the ground. And that's been the whole letter to the, book of, to the, the people of Hebrews, right? Is this opportunity for us to say, okay, whatever's in my rearview mirror, to borrow from Paul, forgetting what lies behind, right? Here's the stake in the ground for us. And maybe some of you tonight need to drive that stake in the ground. And you need to say, man, I'm, I'm done with living for myself. And self-glorification, I have responded to the God of peace who's made peace with me. I have responded now to the, the provision of the Spirit, and I'm excited to grow in Christ's likeness. And, and now I want to be done with self-glorification and all about Christ's glorification. I want to, to have my life read to the world around me, Jesus is better. And I want them, when, when somebody thinks of, of me, I want them to think of my name and immediately think about how much I love Jesus. Y'all, if we can drive that stake in the ground tonight, praise God. And then by his grace and through the provision of his spirit, daily strive to live that, thing, that, that mantra out every single day. What did, what did John the Baptist say? He must increase and I must decrease. Right? If we can get that just tattooed on our foreheads, but backwards so that we see it in the mirror and it reads right for us. You know, if, if we can just own that every single day, Pastor, am I going to do it perfectly? No, I don't. None of us in this room do. But his target doesn't change for us, right? That we might glorify Jesus, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus is better whatever your ambitions are, whatever you are known for, right now where you sit tonight, whatever defines you, Jesus is better. And yeah, you can be defined as a Jesus-loving neuroradiologist and go look at people's brains on x-rays for the glory of Jesus. Right? I'm not saying that you have to give up your career ambitions. I'm just saying have greater ambitions. Don't settle for cheap imitations of things that won't satisfy and won't carry you into eternity. Make sure that you've got Jesus. Let's pray. God, we're grateful and aware of how much we need Christ, how much apart from him we have nothing And we are thankful for the peace that we have in Christ. We are thankful for the provision of the spirit by whom we can walk as obedient sons and daughters. And Lord, we want our lives to read to every single person around us that we are here for the glory of Jesus. Christ be glorified. Christ be magnified in our lives. 
May that mark us, characterize us in everything about who we are. Keep us fixated on that right now, Lord. Help us to drive that stake in the ground tonight to say, I'm done. I'm turning. This is a a pivot point in my life where I'm going to run hard daily after Jesus. Knowing that you've given us everything that we need to be able to do that. Lord, help us feed the spirit and starve the flesh. And in turn, Lord, may we see more of Christ in our lives and less of who we once were, less of the old man. All for the glory of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together as we close our time singing more like Jesus and let that be the cry of our heart that we would be conformed to the image of the Son. You came to the world you created. You came to the world you created, trading your crown for a cross. You willingly died, your innocent life paid the cost. Counting your status as nothing. The King of all kings came to serve, washing my feet, covering me with your love. If more of you means less of me, take everything. Yes, all of you is all I need. Take everything. So you are my life and my treasure. You are my life and my treasure. The one that I can't live without. Here at your feet, my desires and dreams. Here at your feet, my desires and dreams I lay down. If more of you means less of me, take everything. Sing it for If more of you means less of me, take everything. Yes, all of you is all I need. Take everything. Oh, Lord, change me like only you can. Here with my
Yes, all of you is all I need. Take everything. Amen. May that be the cry of our hearts. You guys are dismissed. God is small.